because you did saline solution for one performance. You uh, injected your breasts and you wore an octopus loincloth. <laughs> yes, I knew. I knew that was going to come up one day in the future. <laughs> You are listening to Share a Slice with Sean. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Share a Slice with Sean. I'm your host, Sean McGuire. This episode is going to be a pretty chill one, and uh, there's going to be some rather revealing and perhaps even shocking parts to this episode, I guess like a lot of other episodes too, but um, I'm going to be interviewing uh, naturopath, healer, and personal coach Pierre Black. Uh, He's usually based in, uh, well, he's recently been based in Asia. But uh, he lived here in Montreal for the longest time. And uh, I say the episode is going to be engaging because uh, we're going to be talking about some fairly deep subjects, including body modification, uh, getting over really tough periods in life and Buddhism. And uh, it's going to be revealing, too, because I'm going to divulge all the places that uh, Pierre has actually pierced me uh, to put in... uh, well, body jewelry, I guess, in the past. I don't really do that so much these days, but I, I was into it quite a bit back in my uh, back in my 20s. So you'll get to know that if, if you care or if you want to know. Um, and uh, it could be a bit shocking too, because we're going to be talking about uh, extreme bloodletting, uh, crotch octopuses, uh, loincloth cephalopods, and uh, auto digitation. That would be the, um, you know, uh, didactalization of oneself, chopping off one's own finger uh, for an art project. So, um, yeah, we're going to be doing all this in a very chill and relaxed manner. Um, I, I reached out to Pierre uh, while he was at his meditation retreat, and that's all the way in Thailand. So um, to help the calm mood, you're going to be hearing some horses, some birds, and even some fish, perhaps, in the background during this interview. And uh, Pierre is no longer actually at this retreat. Uh, I'll, I'll be covering that at the end of the episode and talking about what a little more about what Pierre is doing now and point you to his uh, Facebook page. Um, So, and if I sound a bit more quiet and muted during this episode uh, than usual, and I realize that often I I do sound pretty uh, low-key on episodes, uh, just remember that um, there was a time zone issue between me and Pierre, uh, him being in Thailand at all, where we're were pretty much like 12 hours off or somewhere around there. So I had to conduct the interview in the evening. And so I had to keep things quiet because the house is in pretty much constant lockdown because of kids. So, uh, but this will add to the overall zen of the episode, I think. So you'll probably get uh, into the relaxed moods, uh, you know, put your jammies on, listen to the show. Uh, It'll be good. Maybe you'll get a good night's sleep, and um, maybe you'll feel relaxed in the morning. Uh, So without further ado, uh, let's uh, tread softly, walk softly into this very mellow, but occasionally surprisingly um, uh, 
surprisingly shocking or or different interview with the multi-talented Pierre Black. I mean, I guess I first met you through my girlfriend, who is now my wife, actually, uh, Kelly. Okay. And we uh, visited, well, Kelly, first of all, uh, kind of brought me into more exciting lifestyles because I was fresh here in Montreal from the prairies, from Regina, Saskatchewan. So I, I, I had a lot of um, new discoveries in Montreal. But uh, one thing that I, I discovered through her was, uh, was body modification. Um, and I kind of dabbled in it a bit by, I mean, just piercing. So, and at the time when I met you, you were running a very successful um, piercing, um, I guess, uh, I don't want to use the word parlor. I'm trying to decide exactly what it is, mm-hmm. but you, you had your own establishment. Very, very nice, actually, almost like a retreat in a way, because I remember it being very mm-hmm. calm. And there, it was there where you actually pierced me four times. I think, I think it was, uh, first in the ears, then um, in the scrotum, and then in the tongue. Four different occasions. Wow. <laughs> I didn't realize we we were so uh, we were so intimate before the, <laughs> the before the start of this podcast. How dare you? Forget I didn't realize any we had already established that that level of intimacy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Black Sun was the name of the uh, organ uh, was the name of the business, and you were there and you ran it with your um, partner at the time, whose name I'm I'm afraid eludes me now. And uh, yeah, you and uh, um, I just remember uh, uh, a feeling of nice calm in the room uh, before I went in and. Uh, uh, got my piercings. The, the ear piercings were the, they, there was nothing to them really, but, the I have to admit that the tongue piercing was probably the most, uh, I got this big rush of sort of, um, adrenaline when that was going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those were the yeah, days. tongue, tongue. The tongue piercing for me personally as well was uh, pro- possibly my most intense piercing that I that I received. Um, and it's strange because we did all kinds of crazy, intense things back then, and um, the, the tongue piercing was probably the most uh, the one I was most nervous about, and uh, that was most intense as far as the actual experience. So, yeah, that makes sense to me. Which is strange because I also had. I mean, obviously the scrotum piercing as well was like not as, um, you'd think it would be a big deal, but not really. It was just kind of loose skin. So it wasn't as, Mm -hmm. uh, it was, it's like, it wasn't that you were pushing this, um, uh, hollow needle through something like the tongue. It's, there's a lot there, you know, whereas the. Right. The other one, not so much. So that those are my some of my memories of 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 uh, interacting with you. And oddly, uh, every single time we interacted directly, you were uh, sticking a needle through my skin in, in some way or the other. <laughs> <laughs> that made sense. That makes sense for the time. 
I guess. What brought you from, uh, I guess, childhood into this zone back then, at least, when you were into, I guess, body modification is what is the official or the more correct term? Body modification encompasses more activities. Usually, uh, we include tattooing in that, and I, I never mm. did any tattooing at my shop. Um, so usually when you say body modification, you're, you're trying to include piercing and tattooing, but then also other, other activities like, uh, could be branding or scarification or mm -hmm. surgical uh, body art or different things like that. Um, so we did a little bit of the, uh, surgical stuff, um, like implants. Uh, we did all kinds of piercings, including, uh, uh, large or heavy gauge piercings and stretching and um, piercings that were large enough that they had to be incised, like cut rather than pierced. Right. Um, so yeah, we, we we would be considered a body modification shop, body modification studio, um, but without the tattooing. Right, right. And I, I like to draw a difference too between success and uh quality so there were a lot of places through the years that were quite successful but um they were not necessarily reputable or they were not necessarily uh, uh good on the on the side of quality and customer care and i i kind of pride myself on that aspect I mean, I don't know what your opinions are about Western medicine, but it had a feel that it was per, as professional as when you were walking into, let's say, uh, a clinic or something like that. Like it had a real feel mm -hmm. that everything was clean, um, that, uh, you know, things were being sterilized regularly and the aftercare was good too. That was kind of my intention was to bring it up to the level of a um, clinic or um, maybe like a dental office or, you know, even aesthetic cosmetic surgery clinic or something like that to bring it up to that level of, uh, sort of comfort and customer service and, uh, just appearances, making people feel confident in the services that we were offering. And I believe that we had the sort of behind the scenes, uh, skills and intentions to back that up as well. Um, I wanted to bring it up to a, a level of, uh, say hygiene, jewelry quality, um, um, quality of the experience itself, like, like piercing placement and everything that's involved in a piercing and getting it done right. I wanted to bring that up to a, a new level that hadn't really been done before. I started doing this in, in 1990 and, uh, all I was seeing at the time were sort of these you know, backroom kind of shady <laughs> operations. Yeah. Um, some, some of them with, with good intentions, but uh, no one really understanding how to bring it up to a um, level at par with, um, with uh, med the medical community um, in its different forms. So we, we were really trying to do that at the time. We were trying to make it, um, I mean, it took a long time to gain acceptance. Um, as a serious business, both for our business and for the industry at large, took a long time to gain real acceptance. But um, I think we, we did a lot of that work and uh, changed the industry in general. 
Yeah, for sure. Oh, and I didn't answer your question properly before I only answered half the question. Mm. Um, I started piercing when I was, when I was 18 or 19 years old. And, uh, I was about to go into, um, uh, my education in natural medicine. And I was about to choose, you know, what would I do? What kind of, uh, what branch of natural medicine would I take on? And the piercing thing just kind of happened and it was a natural fit for me. Um, I, I got an instructional video from a really, uh, reputable sort of first wave, uh, company that was coming out of California and they produced a, a VHS instructional video at the time. And I somehow got a hold of this video and, uh, not only did I start piercing my friends and myself, but I thought, you know, we can do it a lot better than this. We can use better tools. We can use better techniques, hygiene standards. The jewelry quality was a bit shaky at the time. And I thought I can do much better than this. Um, but I definitely um, used the techniques this company was promoting through the video at the time, um, but rapidly sort of transformed those techniques. Um, yeah. And I got into the business when I was, I, I started piercing, uh, strangers in a, in a formal business context when I was 19 years old and I continued in that business for 15 years. I mean, it's amazing that you, you found this, um, this, um, VHS. It's actually also kind of amazing to me that you just started piercing, your yourself and friends i guess maybe my relationship with needles has never been as uh um uh, comfortable uh let's put it that way maybe it's the kind of person that because for me i i yeah i i'm like oh i'm not going to that's pain i don't want that uh i'm not going to take this needle and stick it into myself so I guess it, it just kind of depends on your relationship with pain and your relationship with needles itself and uh, the human body, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, I guess I was naturally comfortable with bodies and the idea of doing something that was in the, kind of in the medical realm. Mm. And uh, it was it was just a thrill. It was... Um, you know, it wasn't something that was, um, a lot of people ask me if I'm a, if I'm a sadist of some kind and, uh, I, I'm not at all. I'm, I actually, my goal always was to, to reduce and minimize the amount of discomfort that people experience, um, both physically and psychologically. So yeah, that was, that was my, my goal, partly when, even when I, before I had done it myself, I thought, I thought, oh, I can make this better. I can make this smoother and easier and more fun and more pleasant and, um, improve the technical quality and the experiential quality of the, the whole thing. So it's about the, or so it really is about the modification, uh, the end goal, I guess the, yeah, rather than the 
because unfortunately modification is both an adjective and a verb, I guess. But what I really mean mm-hmm. is that it's really about the end. It's not, uh, you're not just like, oh, I'm going to go and, you know, you, you're not, you, people are not thrilling off the pain. I, I mean, I guess some people might, but that wasn't some, the goal. Some are. Yeah. Some definitely are, but I always have a responsibility to minimize the pain. Right. Um, you know, we did, we, we worked a lot with the, uh, the kink community in Montreal. We had a lot of clientele in the kink community and did a lot of crazy stuff. But, um, I, I often had requests to increase or prolong discomfort from people in that community. (laughs) And, um, you know, I allowed them to, to bring in their own, um, they, they could modify the experience or modify the, the sort of, uh, you know, it was almost like a ceremony or, or ritual mm. getting something done, getting something pierced in my shop. And, um, they could modify that ritual a little bit if they wanted to, but not at the expense of the piercing itself. So yeah, it was about having a piercing that would heal and would last and be comfortable and sustainable. Um, but also dealing with the person's psychology, like taking care of people and bringing them through a rite of passage or, you know, a a ritual of transformation. So that was really important to me as well. That's, I, I, I can really get behind that because some of these, uh, the experiences were, um, they're they're like uh, they're uh, punctuation points I think in a life when you have these uh, kinds of experiences uh, and they really bring you closer to uh, re- a reality and a, an awareness they take you out of your head and they put you into what's right. happening and that and I think that different people have different ways of doing that of just trying to reground into the real reality, not like all this BS that's in our heads, you know? So it, it got a real, real feeling to it. So, all right. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I, what I got out of some of it. Uh, I know that there was a lot of, uh, overlap back then with the kink, um, community, um, so when I went to the shop, um, uh, I was in the pagan community, uh, was doing the kind of the Wiccan thing. So there was a lot of that going on in the, uh, back at that time. And, uh, I also went to the, uh, I, back then it was called, I think the fetish fun house, which was uh, here in Montreal. Yes. <laughs> yes. I remember that. Yeah. And I I would go there every once in a while. uh, And uh, we would go there as a couple, Kelly and I. And uh, there were some quite, quite some interesting shows there. Um, There was one guy, I think his name was Jules, and he would place things in his anus. And then he would squat over a bucket. And he would I, I, I think I'm remembering that he would cluck like a chicken and he would actually lay eggs <laughs> into the bucket. Wow. 
and like it was some pretty it was fairly extreme and and kelly told me about one show where um and i'm glad i didn't go because uh i unlike you i I think i might have some some hang-ups about the body so blood is one thing i can't deal with very well so there was one show where apparently one of the uh performers and i god it might have been jules as well uh like cut his arms or his wrists or something and actually bled onto a canvas on the uh, stage oh that was um that was a show that i put on uh was that by, you? uh that was a bo- I, I put on the event mm-hmm. and it, we invited a uh body mod artist and performer still well known still out there doing his thing um we're actually um we were actually pretty close friends at the time, as close as we could be with him being based in Europe. Um, but Lucas Spira, um, mm. Lucas, uh, Z-P-I-R-A, if anybody wants to look him up, um, very, very interesting guy, um, really kind of transcendent view of what uh, body ritual and body bonification can bring to a person. So. Yeah, very interesting guy. He's now making documentaries and doing all kinds of things. Wow! So I I missed my so, uh, I missed uh, my brush with um, uh, uh, I guess fame or something by meeting him. But uh, you know, I probably would have almost passed out. It wouldn't have been good. Uh, yeah, that was a really intense show. There was uh, he he literally like. At certain points, uh, he was spraying blood out of a catheter in his arm. Oh my god! And and literally spraying blood onto the canvas. Um, pretty interesting, pretty intense <laughs> and interesting. And we we had other performances that night that that um, were sort of overshadowed by his his incredible performance. We had uh, um, a friend of mine, another uh, fairly well-known person at the time uh jerome injected his uh face and head right. with saline solution mm-hmm. uh and he he traveled the world for a few years based on that on that trick it's more of a circus stunt than a real body modification permanent body modification uh procedure but it's, it's kind of, of a painful. circus sideshow stunt yeah it's kind of painful but you know if if you were getting it done as a medical procedure and you, you had to do it for some reason or, or even as an elective procedure, like, you know, we're going to, we're going to make you pretty if you endure this discomfort, the level of discomfort is not that high. Um, I think it's more, uh, it, it stresses people out more because of the idea that it's a, a lay person doing the procedure mm. on themselves or, uh, sort of, less skilled lay people doing it on each other and uh and it's intended to look kind of horrific like how can you do this sort of terrifying horrific looking thing this modification of your face and head um that is kind of monstrous and then you know by the next day you're back to normal and with very minimal injury or very minimal discomfort it could be more the of a pain itself thing. is not that yeah, it's more, you know, you have a you have a small injection and you feel some some tension, some pressure. And um it, it's, you know, it's it's something, but it's quite manageable compared to some of the other stuff. Um 
it, it's interesting to to separate actual pain if you if you measured it objectively. It's very hard to measure pain objectively. It's usually tied in with the the individual's psychological experience that goes with it. So, like in my piercing shop or in any good body modification shop or with with any good practitioner, usually you trust the person. The person has techniques to calm down their their customer. Um, medical practitioners know the same thing. A good dentist or a good doctor or surgeon is very good at, at um, creating trust and a sense of calm and confidence and bringing the patient or the client psychologically through the experience. So a lot of these, these things, we, you know, even the guy like spraying blood all over a canvas, um, the actual pain involved was very minimal. He put a, a catheter in his arm. It pinches for a second. If you've ever had a, a catheter put in your right. arm in the hospital, it pinches for literally two seconds. And then there's, there's literally no pain after that. It's just the psychological process of, you know, seeing your own blood come out in a high volume. He, he probably lost about a liter of blood that night. Ah. And uh, you have to be comfortable with that and you have to know when to stop. Oh. Um, but it's more psychological than painful. Yeah. Tell me about it. I, I actually... Um needed to hire a nurse to come to my house and take my blood. I've got that much. I've got such a phobia that um, the thought of my blood leaving my body causes right. me to get like lightheaded. Uh, right. <laughs> and it's interesting because um when I was younger, I got hit by a truck and uh, I got um, uh, like uh, an infection. Um, when they went to set the cast, they accidentally brushed uh, part of the um, the gauze or whatever it was in the, in the hole where my traction was because I was in traction all summer. And when they put the, right. the cast on, they accidentally brushed the 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 gauze or whatever it was aside and then so it got the hole got badly infected so when they took the the cast off they had to take my blood like every day basically so the nurses would come in every day um, and at the time I was you know maybe ten or eleven something like that and uh, they she they would come in and they would take it and my veins were um, after a while they stopped being useful so they had to start uh, pricking my finger and actually scraping my finger to get the blood out and uh, wow. that I think is probably the I think I, I'm pretty sure if had that event or those series of events had not had happened I probably wouldn't have such a visceral reaction to blood tests. So I can rationalize it and I can say, this is ridiculous. I have, you know, liters of blood to bleed and they're only taking an ounce, right? Not a big mm -hmm. deal or not even, not mm -hmm. even an ounce. But uh, as much as I rationalize, it still is something else takes over. 
and uh, right. rather bad fear. So there's no way I could watch that show, but I do appreciate uh, the, again, it's psychological. So whereas like he has that reaction where he can paint pictures, I can't even watch someone else do that. Let, say the least for myself. It's interesting. It's also, it's a lot of it's in your mm -hmm. head. Very much so. Right. And was, was, um, uh, was Jules the guy who, was he the one, who was the one, oh, Jerome, was Jerome the guy who, um, uh, decided to, uh, see what, what, is it, what it would be like to, uh, remove a finger? Yes. <laughs> yeah. He removed the, the tip of his little finger. Wow. on his own at home. That's... And this even, this pushed my limits a little bit. And um, it was interesting because he, he did it as more of an, an art project than, it's not like he, he wanted the end result of having no fingertip. It was almost like more of an art project. Like, like he was able to do this on his own and he documented it in different ways. And, um, I remember at, at one point it, it really resonated for me because at one point when I was young, I, I had this thought come over me that, I mean, I was a little kid. I was maybe like nine or 10 years old or something. And I was thinking about willpower and, you know, the fact that we had to do different things, whatever it was, you know, get your homework done or do some, you know, sports activity or whatever it was. And I was thinking, what would be the the ultimate act of willpower. And in my mind at the time, I remember thinking that if I could, you know, hack off the tip of my finger and actually it was clip off. I was thinking of using like, not right. that I would actually do it at that time. I wasn't, I wasn't like such a disturbed child that I actually wanted to do it. Yeah. But I remember thinking that if you could use a pair of wire cutters or, or bolt right. cutters and clip off the tip of your finger, that would be an incredible sort of ultimate act of willpower. And at the time, of course, I didn't realize how that would echo into the rest of my life and what kind of meaning that that would carry with it through, through the rest of my life. And then of course, um, many years later, Jerome, <laughs> Jerome called me one night. We were fairly close friends at the time. And, uh, he called me one night and said, uh, you know, I did it. I, I cut off my, my fingertip. <laughs> And, uh, and, uh, he, he hadn't really planned it out. He just said, he just said, well, I, I did it. Like, what do I do now? I, I guess I wrap it up and I go to sleep. Um, the, and I the, said, the uh, hospital didn't I occur said, to him. <laughs> I said, well, that he had read about some people who just, um, who literally like compressed it, um, okay. wrapped it up, put some, like a pressure bandage on it and, had, had gone on with their lives and simply um, taken care of the wound and given the skin time to grow over. Um, but that obviously has a high risk of a fairly high risk of infection while you're mm -hmm. dealing with the healing process. And if you're not supervised, if you're alone, you have a, a fairly high risk of uh, um, bleeding, especially while you're sleeping. Oh, so geez, I yeah. was concerned about the risk of the risk of bleeding and, you know, I, I had a story. I, I cut my finger really badly when I was 15 years old. 
I had been drinking, partying a little bit. And at the end of the night, while drunk, I cut my finger. And uh, fortunately, my mother checked on me in the middle of the night, like a few hours after I'd gone to sleep. Oh, yeah. And she woke me up screaming. And, she, and then I said, I said, what? What are you yelling about? What, Blood like, all over the place. Why are you huh? yelling at me? Yeah. And she, she turned the light on and the whole bed was red. Jeez. And this was just, this was just through my fingertip. Yeah. You know, this was just the tip of my finger. Well, people are shot. That obviously hole's quite not deep. Very, yeah. You know. And, okay. you know, I, I wrapped it up. I put a pressure bandage on it and, and went to sleep. And it was a good thing my mother found me because I may have bled out that night. I may have died. Um, the, the whole bed was literally red. You um, know, uh, because a bullet, a hole caused by a bullet is surely is not very big. <clears throat> so a fingertip, I mean, right. the same, same thing. And also a finger, it's bony, you know? So, I mean, how are you going to put pressure on that? Right. Like a lot of pressure on that. Especially if you're drunk. I mean, uh, forget it, right? Yeah, yeah. So I had this experience in my mind and that I was quite concerned about Jerome just, you know, wrapping it up and going to sleep. You know, he, he, he removed his finger at about, you know, 10 o'clock and then he was, he called me at 11 and he was planning to on, you know, going to sleep at say 12. And I thought this was incredibly dangerous and I was really glad that he called me and I pressured him to go to the hospital and deal with it properly. And they also do, a much nicer job with the they do a small surgery where they trim the bone a little bit yeah. and then close the skin over the end of the uh the end of the finger yeah so this gives you a much better aesthetic result and uh speeds up the healing process a lot if you're able to close the skin the the look the the it's healing process like shorter risks are much lower without a nail yeah obviously. but Yes. Yeah. He took off the first joint. So he only took off the, really the, the, the tip, the, the very tip. I guess if you had to choose a finger so what, to lose, that would be the most convenient. I mean, if anybody gave me the choice yes. ever, it's the, probably the least useful out of all of them, I would imagine. But, yes. Uh, I think the, the, the goal, as I said, was not the, the look of having a missing finger, but it was more the whole the willpower and the, the ritual involved in doing the, the self, doing a self amputation. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't, I don't have any desire to do that to myself, to experience that myself, but in some way I understand that impulse. Yeah, yeah I do. Again, it's, it, it's about being in control of one's destiny in a sense. I mean, he's just, He's making a decision and he's, he's, I don't know if the right word is, he's, he's really conquering his, his mind and conquering this fear and, and doing it, this thing. And it, in a sense, like a, a lot of, I think a lot of our trips and a lot of our, our, our ideas of, of doing something worthwhile, um, you have to conquer a certain amount of, of fear uh, to get anywhere. I, I can see that you could, you could, I mean, if he can do that, think of what he could do, what else he could do if he puts his mind to it, you know, a exactly. lot, yeah. anything at that stage, if you're doing things like that. Wow. Right. 
So you had the kink thing, and 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 actually, uh, I don't know if you want me to bring this up or not, but I was discussing this with Kelly, and she said, "Oh, you should bring up the uh, performance uh, that uh, Pierre did with the uh, because you did saline solution for one performance. You uh, injected your breasts, and you wore an octopus loincloth." <laughs> yes, I knew, I knew that was going to come up one day in the future. <laughs> There's a photo of that somewhere on the internet. Um, that was, I really did that as a, that was an art piece for me. And I, I almost think that that would have been gallery worthy. Um, this was not something I did commonly. I don't have a particular, uh, I don't have a, a particular interest in, yeah. In, in octopi, um, <laughs> it's not it's not a thing for me. Um, it was more of a an art project, and the idea was kind of uh, morphing the body into a kind of alien androgynous state. And um, I learned from a number of my friends, including Jerome, this idea of doing saline injections, and I thought I could I could grow breasts. And then what what is a kind of um, there's this whole uh, uh, Asian, um, what are they called? Cephal- cephalopod um, yeah, yeah. fetish thing. There's all this like uh, Cthulhu. anime and yeah. also some, some live, um, live porn and other things that are shot with uh, uh, octopus and squid. Tentacle porn, gotcha. And so tentacle porn, yeah, it's, it's a thing in Asia and... Um, the, there's something interesting about an octopus too. It's this kind of like, it's it's a bit, it's it's mucusy. It's this kind of uh, there. There's something kind of genital about the whole thing, but it's hard to tell what gender it would be. Right. Mm-hmm. The whole the whole creature is is a little bit like um, some kind of uh, extremely exotic uh, genitalia and. I got this vision of myself. I, you know, I, I, um, in my everyday life, I think I look quite masculine and I have quite a masculine body. So it was interesting to have, to be wearing nothing but this, um, this raw octopus, uh, strapped, literally strapped over my genitals and to over about 90 minutes or two hours, um, grow a substantial pair of feminine looking breasts. Um, it's your, so yeah, I think it was, I think it was gallery worthy. Unfortunately at that time, um, it it was relegated to a, uh, a club in in a, a fetish party, but, um, yeah, I was really proud of that show. And, uh, you know, I, I don't really do performances like that anymore, but, if I were asked to do something like that in the context of a gallery, again, I might, I might consider it. It, it was your, uh, not, not to, you know, uh, belittle it, but what it was your octopussy, right? Your octopus. Exactly. Get it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. We used that term actually when, when, when we did the show, oh, okay. uh, that everybody, it, it was an, an automatic reference for people when, when they saw that show. See, I can't. I think that's what it was. Uh, they called it. It was in one of the local papers at the time. 
um, they published a photo of it. Mm. And uh, it was actually, the headline was Octopussy, I think. Maybe it was, uh, you know, an old Vice mag or something like that um, back when it was in print. I think it, I think it may have been The Mirror. Oh, The Mirror. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. One of those things you get around the stores and stuff. See, I might have actually been at that particular show. I just can't quite mm-hmm. place it. I mean, I, I have fuzzy memories sometimes. I, I remember... I have this, I don't know if it was dream or a reality, but I, I just remember a, kind of waking up in a, in a dim sum on a Sunday morning, uh, wearing, like wearing, still wearing fetish gear. And everyone was kind of staring mm-hmm. at me funny because I was wearing fetish mm-hmm. gear in a dim sum, you know, <laughs> the next morning. And I'm like, but I can't, but now, you know, it's, it's like, it's been over 20 years. Uh, so I can't mm-hmm. quite place if it was like a, just a bad dream or if it was reality. It's like, um, uh, kind of, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, I do remember, uh, Kelly telling me about that. So, I mean, you were into, um, the fetish scene, you were into the body modification scene, uh, with your piercing shop. But then, um, I I can remember you closed the, the shop and you kind of like, uh, fell off my radar at least for, Mm -hmm. well, basically that's it. I don't think I remember seeing you since then at that point. What, what (laughs) happened, uh, to the, uh, to that, uh, phase of your life? Like, uh, what caused this uh, switch? The first thing that happened was I felt like I had taken uh, piercing to the level that I could take it. Um, I had done it for 15 years. I, I, it's the only thing in my life that I would say that I have mastered. Um, mastered to the point where I influenced the industry at large on a, on a worldwide level and mastered to the point where you know, I was sort of able to do most of the common piercings almost without thinking about it with, with muscle memory, um, including the the taking care of the psychological aspect of the, the client. You know, that was that was very natural and reflexive. I didn't have to – basically, there were no more challenges for me in mm-hmm. body piercing. Um, it's a little bit of a uh, – it's a little bit of a dirty industry. Um, there's a lot of competition and, uh, part of the industry is sort of, you know, there are some sort of like bad actors in the industry as well. Um, and it's, it, it was intense. I mean, it was 15 year, really intense project. And I felt a lot of responsibility toward my employees as well. And, uh, my partner at the time, um, 10, 10 of that 15 years was spent with, uh, Jessica managing the business mm-hmm. and, okay, yeah. um, taking care of things. So I felt a lot of responsibility to my employees and to my partner as well. And I just, I think it was really lucky. I, I came to a place where I was a little bit fed up with piercing. It was time to change something about what I was doing. Um, and that would have been expanding the business and sort of franchising and teaching other piercers my standards or that meant closing the business and going on to something else. And I was kind of 
given an opportunity, I had um, all of my staff for various reasons were, were uh, leaving in the same month. I had one who was having a baby and one who was moving back uh, to their hometown. And um, I had ended my relationship with Jessica the year before. And so, you know, I only had myself to think about. And the job was either, you know, get more staff and train other piercers, maybe expand the business. And it was a big, big undertaking if I were to do it on my own. Um, and then there was part of me that thought, there's got to be more to life. I mean, this was, this was hard work. It was stressful. It kept me in the city. And uh, I wanted to try something different. And, you know, I, I had a really strong interest in natural medicine and had done a lot of uh, studies over the years. You know, I had been basically training as a naturopath uh, on a sort of quarter time study basis for many, many years. As I said before, I had an interest in that before I got into piercing. Um, but then there was a kind of spiritual component as well that was calling me. And it was not so much, um, I want to separate religion from spirituality. I think that's very important to do. Um, I don't have a, a religious calling or a religious inclination, but this idea of getting control over one's mind and to some degree also the body. Um, and in my work, I felt like I had been developing only one aspect of myself and I wanted to um, work more with my intellect and also explore what we would normally call the sort of spiritual realm. And uh, another, I closed my business and immediately another opportunity arose. And that was that I was invited to go to Japan indefinitely and live in a little rural Zen temple, wow. a little fishing village in Southern Japan. And, uh, I literally just, I got rid of most of my stuff. I put a few things in storage and without knowing how long I was going, I went to Japan and I ended up staying there um, eight months on that first trip. And I mean, how did this work out? Like, was it just a, just a meditation? Was it a, a Zen Buddhist? Um, yeah, it's temple, a Japanese or? Rinzai Zen Buddhist temple, not a monastery. So it's not where monks go to train, mm -hmm. but rather it's a small local temple. So it's a, it's a 600 year old temple site. So it's, it's historically, uh, important in the area. And the building itself is about a hundred years old and it's been in the monks family for three generations for about a hundred years as well. And it just functions as, as any, uh, Zen temple does in Japan. It's like a kind of community center. Um, Buddhism and Zen in Japan deals primarily with funerals. And the other religion of Japan uh, deals with the sort of um, uh, birth and marriage traditionally, um, or, t or let's say typically, because you could have a Buddhist wedding and you could have a Buddhist birth ceremony, but 
most people in Japan identify to some degree with both religions. So uh, the Zen temple deals mainly with um, funerals and also with uh, sort of what looks like ancestor worship, where you have a shrine in your house and you have the ashes of your relatives in the uh, sort of graveyard at the temple. And there are at regular intervals after someone dies, there are these sort of ceremonies where the monk will chant for the ancestor. And it's like taking a, a moment, taking a prescribed slot of time to remember and focus on your, your ancestor. Um, so that's sort of the main function of a, a, a Buddhist temple in, in Japan. Uh, community center advice, uh, um, events on the Buddhist calendar. So you have different sort of celebrations and parties and uh, the people from the town, the village, mostly older people will come and cook a meal. Um, there will be chanting, the monk will do a chanting ceremony. Um, so that, that's the, the function in terms of um, how, wh what the temple does for local people. Um, but this, this temple is unusual in that um, the, the monk has a connection to Canada. He taught Zen as a young monk in the 1970s and 80s. He taught Zen to uh, Canadians in, uh, in BC for years. And he's also traveled around the world and is, is uh, quite connected, has a lot of connections outside of Japan. So what he does is he brings foreign visitors, you know, usually only three or four people at a time, but he brings foreign visitors to his little temple in, in uh, rural southern Japan, and it's a pretty incredible experience. It's, um, you know, Japan is, is pretty accessible uh, in terms of standard tourism, but to get this experience of deep immersion into Japanese culture, in, in a rural setting and to actually live at a temple uh, is a really special opportunity. And he, he facilitates that very unique opportunity for people. Um, it's more than just going and visiting a temple. It's actually like you have a really engaged host and a very personal experience. Um, and back then uh, it was just a guest here and there, you know, in, in one year he would have maybe 10, 10 foreign guests stay with him and they would stay for anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of months. And I kind of set a record by living there for eight months in the beginning. Um, but now, uh, now he's basically for 10 months out of the year, he receives four guests, give or take, uh, and we, you know, I, I handle all of the online bookings for him still. Um, so he has a website and there's a way to actually go and stay with him if you want. But it, it's a really incredible experience. And that, that, first, uh, that first experience for me really changed my life and gave me an understanding of what, what people are talking about when they talk about having a, going on a spiritual quest or having a spiritual calling. Um, and I think what that means essentially is to have greater control over one's experience of life, one's experience of being, to have a, uh, a broader experience with 
more control in some ways, but, but that control also involves um, the ability to let go, to let go of control. Yeah. So yeah, that was a lot. I just said a lot of things there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, I mean, the, th the thing is that it sounds like it was, it's quite amazing because it sounds like just what you needed. It, it's really uh, like it was very fortunate for you. And it, to me, it almost sounds a little bit what, like what you're doing now. Um, I believe the, uh, your, your retreat is called Middle Path Retreat. Did I get that right? Yes. And yes. Uh, if you go to middlepathretreat.com, I think you can see the website. The pictures are beautiful, but it, it looks fantastic there. But what struck me was that when I... Uh, took a look at the website. I saw that um, if if it's this sort of um, if if your 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 spirit or uh, I don't want to get woo here, but let's say if you require the um, to live the life of structure and community uh, to bring yourself, you know into a, a, a better place, uh, spiritually, then you go there and you can have, you can have this community and this structure. Cause I saw like, uh, it was like a clock, like icons of the clock. And it showed you, um, the schedule really. Um, and it was like this sort of level of structure, um, that you could have. And it sounds sort of like what a little bit like what you had when you went to, when you were went on your trip there for for eight months is is I mean is it similar what you're doing? Absolutely, except what I'm doing is uh, I would say quite markedly separate mm -hmm. from religion. Right, um, exactly. I mean, he's he's a seventy year old. Japanese monk and he's very much tied to his religious tradition mm -hmm. and they they also make uh, certain certain claims about the nature of reality that I don't subscribe to mm -hmm. but the tools and techniques that I learned when I was there um, now like since I went for the first time I've now lived there for almost two years of my life over the last 10 or 11 years um, and so, yes, that's, um, that experience has, uh, uh, profoundly influenced and inspired what I'm doing now. Uh, and even if I don't, you know, even as a, just working as a naturopath, which is my, my other job, um, even if I were just, you know, running some other kind of business, what I've taken from Zen retreat in Japan is uh, indelible. It's just um, part of who I am now. And I try to bring that experience and those tools, that tool set into my everyday life. And I try to pass it on to other people. Um, and it doesn't, this is something that's that's really important, I think, because people people are confused by the transition from, you know, crazy 
body modification to um, this idea of uh, walking a spiritual path or becoming a more spiritual person. And it does not cancel out my past and it does not cancel out my previous interests. It's simply something that expands my, um, my sphere of awareness and expands my toolbox, my toolbox for life. Right. So I think it's important to have as many experiences as we possibly can. And, um, meditation and, uh, the exploration of other spiritual practices expands and deepens that toolbox and expands and deepens that, uh, experience of, of life. So I, I think that's what I'm, that's what I'm interested in. Um, I don't, I don't want to reproduce uh, life in a Zen Buddhist temple, and I don't want to teach Buddhism. Although there is a lot that I draw from Buddhism, I think it's an interesting. I think, as far as religion goes, it's it's truer than than most. Um, but I definitely don't want to be a Buddhist teacher. What I want to teach is a way of living that feels better and feels more balanced and optimizes mind and body. Um, but to your original question, yeah, definitely uh, my time in Japan has been a huge influence. And I even chose this property. I found this, very, this property very inspiring because we have a lot of bamboo forest sur surrounding us, um, just like at uh, Zen Retreat in Japan. There's giant bamboo here, and we use it for construction and for, uh, you know, just whenever we need construction material or, or, uh, yeah. So it, the, the environment here is really, really similar to, uh, to the retreat in Japan. Yeah. And, uh, actually, um, it, you know, it's interesting because for my own path, I went from Roman Catholic to, you know, more like a Wiccan to sort of neo-pagan. And then I went from there to like being a pantheist. And then from there, I, I kind of swung all the way over to atheist and then obnoxious uh, uh, atheist. Mm -hmm. uh, and then now I'm kind of mm -hmm. swinging back again uh, to the sense that, um, you know, uh, when I was medit when I used to meditate, and I still do occasionally, I would have these moments where, it, um, I, you know, I to me it felt like um, magic, or it felt, uh, you know, like transcendental, et cetera, et cetera. And I would feel like I was part of the room, or I felt like the room was becoming part of me, like I was just becoming one with the world, and. Um, mm -hmm. During my more atheisty, atheisty times, I kind of rejected that. Uh, oh, it's biochemical. There's nothing really to that, whatever. But now I look back at that and I'm like, you know what? Um, those experiences are amazing and they're true. And yes, I am part of the universe and the universe is part of me. And 
I think mm-hmm. there's just so much. Um, I think that what's noble about what I do know about Buddhism is that um, it's a religion that that causes you to kind of um, look at reality and causes makes you kind of realize like um i i guess living in the in the moment living in the present if you know what i mean at least that's my understanding and you know so much of my stress and unhappiness comes from just obsessing over fictions that are in my head um Whereas a lot of times if I were just able to master my mind and just be in the present moment, I would realize things are not so bad. You know, the, um, I'm in good health. Uh, the sun is shining. Things are good. That's a lot, but do you, do you, do you kind of get what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it, it, I think when things are not so bad in life, uh, any kind of meditative practice will help you kind of build that toolbox so that when bad things happen in life, you're better able to deal with it and have mm-hmm. healthy perspective on it, including things that are kind of final, like uh, death, death of others in our lives, our own impending death, illness, suffering, physical pain, psychological pain, all of these things are when you have the, the a pre-existing toolbox that allows you to have clearer perspective on reality, the reality of your of life itself and your experience of it. Um you can get through these more difficult times. Uh, you, you can, you can come out the other side, whatever the other side is, uh, just better. Just, you can even go through something like your own death and be calmer and strangely happier as you pass through that process. Um, I have not taken on any, even with my time in this exploration, I have not taken on any magical beliefs about the nature of reality. Um, there's simply experiment and observation. If you do this, if you do these practices, you are likely to get this psychological or experiential result. It's very simple. It's not a claim about the nature of reality. It's simply a claim about how the brain functions. So if you follow these sort of well, um, well-established practices, you're very likely to experience these benefits or these changes in consciousness or perception. It's that simple. Um, I don't extend, I don't extend past the experience itself, the, the, the phenomenological aspect into making claims about the nature of reality. My, my position on the nature of reality outside of myself is firmly grounded still in rational scientific 
knowledge. Um, so I think it's really important to differentiate there. Um, and I'm not, you know, I would say I'm, uh, I'm still a fairly hardcore atheist. If somebody wants to get into that discussion with me, I would say that I'm a radical theological non-cognitivist. <laughs> um, and, and I can go there in conversation if, if I'm asked to. But I, I also don't really see the point of having conversations like that with a 70-year-old monk who's teaching me an incredibly valuable uh, set of tools and offering me an incredibly valuable set of life experiences. Um, and I don't see the value in uh, having that conversation in a confrontational way with people who are deeply religious and who I will cause suffering to if I confront them unexpectedly in, in this, uh, <laughs> in this, in this realm, you know, it, it for me, that's what it was. I, I just realized, uh, especially with this podcast and meeting different people in different places, I realized that the action of actually meeting people and having a meaningful conversation um, was just worth so much more than than you know keeping points or you know keeping score of uh, mm -hmm. whether you've proven this or that. And to be honest, um, when you're trying to convince someone that God doesn't exist or what have you, uh, or a God or what have you. Um, uh, confronting someone is um, practically useless. Like um, uh, you, you're going to cause pain, as you say, and you're you're most likely going to cause them to uh, double down and uh, believe their uh, their assumption even more. Right? Uh, it just right. seems like a, a useless endeavor. And uh, I think that um, there's an author called Peter Bargosian. I think who talks about that, who talks about how um, simply giving someone proof of something doesn't that does exist or doesn't exist is not going to help. Um, in a sense, just uh, being a good person and living a true life um, uh, will make that person perhaps think twice if that's really what you want to do. And uh, in this world, we've mm -hmm. got enough problems as it is probably, uh, you know, uh, uh, try to just try to, you know, uh, live a true life and try to, uh, you know, reveal the truth to as many people as possible, but don't push them, I guess, is where I come in. Right. Um, yeah. So, um, so you have the, re you have the retreat um, it's all open. You just got back from Burma. You did some tra traveling, I hear. Um, mm -hmm. what, uh, what's cooking over there right now? Like, what are your plans for the future? And, uh, I mean, uh, how are things going and, uh, what are your ideas? Well, the retreat is just getting started. Um, you can see, uh, as you mentioned, you can see what the program is and what the place looks like um, on the website at middlepathretreat.com. Um, and that tells you a lot about what the intention is and what, what 
uh, your experience will be like if you come to the retreat. Um, on my end of things, uh, we are just getting started. We are not fully booked with guests at this point. Um, to be honest, we have um, we have about two more months to see if we can make it work. Mm. It's not, you know, we're not on solid ground. We have not bought the property. Um, you know, I, I went into this knowing that I was, um, somewhat underfinanced and hoping that maybe I can pull a rabbit out of a hat and make this work, um, within the, you know, the time, the time allotted, the time that I can afford to maintain the property. Um, and the nice thing about this is that it's an experiment. It's a wonderful experiment. It's been a lot of fun and I have at least two more months here. Um, and I'm not attached to the outcome either way. Um, if it doesn't work out here, I may end up, uh, in creating another retreat situation in another part of the world or again here in Thailand. Um, I also have no, no issues going back to just being a naturopath and, um, you know, doing what I was doing before, before this situation. So it's nice to feel that what, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try this and I may succeed. I'm excited about the place. I'm excited about what we're offering here. I'm excited about the property we found. Um, but I'm not particularly attached to outcome. Um, I'm more interested in, uh, teaching what I have to teach and in uh, creating a kind of way of life that supports that. It's, um, it's, it's nice because um, some people that I know um, that, that, that seem to do very well in the world, or at least that's the impression I get, and maybe it's just because they're happy, you know, they mm -hmm. don't see a lot of them don't see the life as being a set of necessarily challenges and they don't see life as being a difficult slog. They kind of see life as being a, a game. Um, and if you uh, have a, um, a point of view that you were just mentioning where you're just going to uh, do this amazing thing, and you're going to just see where it takes you. See if it. See if you, if you can continue doing it financially, or if you do it somewhere else. And if you have, and if all paths before you are equally uh, joyous, then it sounds like really it's a game. It's a it's a rewarding and right. fun game, which is fantastic. Absolutely. Um, I think that's something that a meditative practice or the sort of traditional Zen toolbox can bring to you is that you're not attached to a particular thing or a particular outcome. Um, you're simply looking for uh, opportunities and you're, you're looking for um, enjoyment of life and to have your basic needs met. And the rest is kind of icing you know if you manage to do something big or if you manage to do something um that has a lot of impact for other people um that's just a bonus yeah 
And I really went into this. I really went into this with the idea that that I I have to do the experiment. I have to try this, and it may or may not be my place in the world. Um, but we, you know, we give it a really good good run. We work hard and see what happens. Um, and you know, I get to live in, I get to live in Thailand for a year. Sounds <laughs> awesome. With all those nature sounds in the background, yeah. you, it sounds like you have some goats there or something and a number of other animals. <laughs> uh, and, um, there are lots of birds. I don't know what you're hearing, but there are a lot sound of birds. sort of like a goat. And s- some bug sounds. And, uh, you know, we have, uh, fish in the pond that occasionally produce some sound. Um, and there are horses here. You may have heard the horses. Maybe that was it. Maybe that was it. Mm-hmm. It sounds actually absolutely extraordinary. I'm going to be putting a link in the show notes. Again, it's called middlepathretreat.com. And I invite all my listeners to check it out. And uh, if you're in uh, Thailand, do go. Uh, check out the website. Uh, listen, Pierre, thanks so, so much for this discussion today. It was very interesting. You're very welcome. I think the topics were very varied, that's for sure. And uh, thanks for uh, joining me uh, on this uh, Sunday morning. Thank you for having me. So that's about it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Pierre Black. Uh, Quite a while ago, um, we did this interview, actually. So um, the episode is now coming out, and a fair bit has changed. First of all, Pierre, uh, things didn't quite work financially the way he might have wanted, so uh, he's actually uh, left Thailand now. Uh, so uh, the Middle Plath Retreat is, uh, is done for now, I believe. Uh, he's on to new adventures, but uh, don't worry. Uh, he's already doing some pretty cool things, and uh, you can follow him on Instagram and Facebook. There'll be links in the show notes for this. And uh, yeah, you can go find all those things at shareslicepodcast.com. I'd like to recommend to you... Uh, to check out some of these podcasts as well uh, in between episodes of my show because I realize uh, the episodes are kind of staggered. Um, Project Archivist. Uh, now, these guys, Rojan in particular, have been super supportive when I, I feel like I'm never going to be able to get an episode out. Uh, they're always there to kind of give me a pep talk. And uh, their episodes uh, cover all kinds of interesting esoteric um, uh, topics. Uh, do check it out. Project Archivist and also the Sharp Podcast. Uh, this is Steve uh, helps uh, get me through my day, and he talks about uh, you know how to manage my time. Although I don't think he likes the word manage very much for manage time, but he definitely does help um, help me get in control of my tasks. I guess help me um, do less of the things that. Get, get more of the things that I need to get done done so I can do more of the things I want to do. 
And uh, finally, um, there's a podcast that I've just started listening to. Uh, it's called um, I'd Like to Have a Beer With Podcast, and uh, it's by uh, Jason Topps uh, and uh, Jason Topping, rather. And uh, Jason, um, his podcast is much like mine, um, except we instead of beer, we have a uh, we have pizza here, although I mean, I've been drinking a lot of coffee late, lately, to be honest. So I'll be putting links to all of these in the show notes, and uh, you should check those out if you can. As always, I'd like to thank the Fantastic Plastics for letting me use their music for the intro and the outro. I'd like to encourage you to check out the Subgenius movie, uh, which has just been released at the South by Southwest um, uh, the South by Southwest uh, movie festival, uh, music movie festival. And um, I am a subgenius, so um, uh, this is coming off the last episode of Share a Slice. Uh, do check out the movie. I I'm not in the movie, but uh, I, I can't wait to see the movie. And there'll be promotions at the end of this episode, as always, uh, telling you how to become an ordained minister of the Church of the Subgenius. It is my cult of choice, so I, I have to promote it, or or J.R. Bob Dobbs will, will definitely come after me. Uh, no, he won't. No, he won't. He's got too much slack for that. Uh, anyway, um, if you know someone who uh, fits the bill for interesting and who you think would be on the show and be very... Um, I guess, engaging. Even if it's yourself, don't be shy. Do get in contact with me. Uh, you can check out the contact information over at shareslicepodcast.com, as always. Uh, remember to follow the show on Apple Podcasts, review and rate. Also remember that uh, it's on Instagram as well, Twitter, Facebook, etc. Please follow. So that's about it. Thanks so, so much for everyone listening, everyone who's made it this far in the episode. Congratulations. Uh, do come back next time. I have more interviews in the can. I just have to get around to editing them, which I hope to do very soon. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great night or day. Have you ever wondered about your neighbors? Maybe wondered about the weird thumps and bumps chance emanating from their apartment? I was once a degenerate, but Bob saved me. It's the Church of the Subgenius. Their prophet's name is Bob. I found the image of Bob's head in a bedpan. Hey, Bob! If Jim Jones could talk 900 people into killing themselves, we could talk 900 people into sending us a dollar. grew up as a little white boy in the 1950s in a middle-class home. I really did feel like a weirdo. We had this sort of an icon we could blame everything on, the conspiracy of normalcy. <laughs> Wouldn't you like revenge on these mediocrities, these normals who have made normality the norm? We were grasping for this crazy religion to help us see the light. We tied together every fringe belief you could think of. It made perfect sense to me. Repent! Quit your job! Slack off! We offer eternal salvation for triple your money back. The subgenius was a club. It was a badge. You may think it's funny. We hope you do. We are trying to deliver medicine of a sort. You 
Y'all are out to put down outrageous cult groups. What does this mean? No, no, this is an outrageous cult group. <laughs> Not everyone in the church of the subgenius gets along with one another. It was a little bit scary. We realized some crazy people are attracted to this. It got a little too far out for me. It's very effective to slice the world up and to pit everyone against each other. We believe that you know you do need to eliminate and exterminate all the normals. If you want to sell a religion, you have to kill the deity. That's how you do it. The conspiracy constantly grows, and it is worse than ever. There's always going to be a conspiracy. It can morph, and it can evolve, and so can the Church of the Subgenius. We actually are a religion that seems like an art piece, that seems like a religion, that seems like performance art, that seems like a joke, that seems like a religion. What the hell do you think you're doing? Dragging your butt through the day, selling body and soul to a bunch of bland normals? Acting stupid so they'll think you're one of them? Tired of getting all of the guilt? But none of the sex? There is a simple answer, dear friend. A glowing beacon of slack amidst the turmoil and darkness. It's J.R. Bob Dobbs, the living slack master in his church of the subgenius. Bob brings a new destiny for the abnormal. For Bob comes to justify our sins, to unmask the conspiracy, and to get us back the slack they stole away. It's us versus them. Are you going to fry? in hell on earth alongside the pink boys or will you pull the wool over your own eyes and accept Bob into your mind repent quit your job slack off and praise Bob Church of the Sub-Genius Eternal Salvation or triple your money back